Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Oxford Fantasy Literature Podcast. I'm Catherine Ollie, um, I'm a junior research fellow in medieval studies here in Oxford. And in this episode, I'll be introducing the work of Brian McClellan, noted for his Powder Mage novels, the Powder Mage trilogy and its sequel trilogy, Gods of Blood and Powder. And a warning at the beginning that there will be major spoilers for both of these trilogies ahead. Rather than taking its inspiration from the medieval period, McClellan's work is set in a kind of early industrial period and could be categorised as flintlock or gunpowder fantasy. Alongside a fairly traditional magic system in which users called privileged reach for and manipulate the else, each finger of the hand being attached to one of the five elements, fire, earth, air, water and ether, which enables them to do powerful sorcery, there is also a competing gunpowder-based magic system. Those with the affinity called powder mages or marked can snort or eat gunpowder in order to attain a heightened state of awareness, a so-called powder trance. And they can also manipulate gunpowder-based weaponry, for example, floating a bullet farther and with greater accuracy than could be obtained simply by firing it from a rifle, a method that's often used to assassinate privileged from a distance, or they could ignite gunpowder from a distance with their powers. And this disturbs the previous balance of power, in which the privileged had no rivals. So you can see the social disruptions of the early industrial period, in which an emerging class of industrialists and manufacturers begins to challenge the supremacy of the old landed elite, being recast in McClellan's work in magical terms. Opening with a military coup, masterminded by Field Marshal Tamas of the Adran army, which takes obvious inspiration from the French Revolution, with the aristocracy being guillotined in the streets, McClellan's work is an excellent example of how to successfully take the royalism out of fantasy. But it's also a study in contradictions, and a demonstration of just how pervasive and inescapable such royalist tropes can be because by the end of his second trilogy, and a major spoiler alert here, it emerges that one of the series' principal female characters, Carpole, the mysterious companion of Field Marshal Tamas's son, Tanielle, is in fact a lost Dainai's princess. And the trilogy ends with her ascending to godlike status and becoming the new empress of the Dainai's empire. From a reader's point of view, it's a satisfying ending in spite of the cliché, from a more critical perspective, it's very interesting to see a series that began by so definitely rejecting fantasy's fascination with royalty, end by succumbing to that very lure. Although Carpole is far from a traditional empress, and indeed she hopes to use her position to modernise Dionyse to the point where a monarch is no longer needed and she can retire, still the resilience of what we might term the lost heir motif is remarkable. Both Carpole and Field Marshal Tamas, then, seize tremendous, almost unlimited power with the aim of using it for the common good. But it's a good that is defined almost entirely according to their own perspective. A perspective I believe we are meant to share, seeing modernisation and democratisation as a good thing. But there remains a fascinating tension between despotism and democracy in McClellan's work. His narratives coalesce around individuals who usher in sweeping change, reshaping the world according to their desires. And his books leave little room for the slower, 
gradual march of progress amidst all their revolutions and wars for independence. Of course, it's also a vexed question, and one ripe for deeper sociological analysis, whether depicting a military coup like Tamas's, segueing successfully, if not entirely smoothly, into democratic governmental rule, is not just as wishful and unrealistic as the optimistic noble royalism which characterises many earlier, and indeed current, fantasy works. History would perhaps suggest that military revolutions have more chance of leading to turmoil or a military dictatorship than to democratic self-governance. And key to the success of the revolution in McClellan's novels is the death of its instigator at the end of the Powder Mage trilogy, which precludes the possibility of his holding on to power for too long and becoming the very dictator he has deposed. Though McClellan does revisit this idea in his second trilogy in the character of Lindet, who begins as a liberation leader and is transformed by the realities of power into something more oppressive. But safely dead, Tamas offers a non-threatening legacy, one that can be embraced without fear. His death offers a kind of political closure, but it's also a personal one, resolving finally the troubled relationship that he had with his son. Indeed, the theme of fatherhood runs prominently through both of McClellan's trilogies. As a side note, it's extremely fitting that the book, which starts it all, Promise of Blood, is dedicated to McClellan's father. It's the figure of Tamas, of course, who really embodies paternity and becomes the vehicle for its exploration in the first trilogy. Tamas's efforts to become the father of a nation, masterminding the transformation of Adro from a monarchy into a republic, take a heavy toll on his personal relationships, most particularly his relationship with his son Taniel, but also slightly more peripherally with his adopted son Borbador and his adopted daughter Laura. At the beginning of the Powder Mage trilogy, Tamas and Taniel have a fraught, almost impersonal relationship as a result of the many years Tamas has spent meticulously planning his revolution rather than building a relationship with his son. On Taniel's side, Tamas's impressive reputation as a military commander also leaves him a lot to live up to. And when they initially reunite after two years of separation, Tamas is seemingly more moved by the exquisite pair of dueling pistols that Taniel gives him than by his son's actual return. Quote, Tamas introduced Taniel as a powder mage. Was that all he was to the field marshal? Just another soldier. Taniel muses to himself in Promise of Blood, page 25. Their slow journey toward understanding and acceptance of one another is, I would argue, the major emotional arc of the trilogy, and it culminates as Tamas lays dying and finally admits to his son just how proud of him he has become something that has been unspoken but now finally achieves full expression. And Thomas's last words to his son in The Autumn Republic, page 555, Your mother says, hi, my boy, we love you, finally reconcile the fractured pieces of their family into one harmonious whole, present together, if only for an instant, before death separates them again. Ben Stike in McClellan's second trilogy, set in Fatrasta, a former territory of the Kez Empire, serves as an interesting comparison to Tamas and continues McClellan's exploration of fatherhood. 
Like Tamas, Stike is a military figure, the leader of the Mad Lancers who fought bravely in Fertrasta's war for independence. Also like Tamas, he is a man on a mission. In his case, he's out to get revenge on the men who betrayed him at the end of the war and saw him sent to a penal labour camp for ten years, just as Tamas wanted revenge on the King of Adro on a personal level for allowing his beloved wife to be executed some years before the main action of the series. And again, like Tamas, Stike is an important paternal figure, the only one of the main protagonists in the Gods of Blood and Powder trilogy with parental responsibilities. While incarcerated, he adopted an orphaned girl, Celine, to protect her in the labour camp when her own father died there. In contrast to Tamas, however, Stike manages to walk away from his mission and not to be consumed by it. Tamas gives everything for his vision of Adro, including his life, while Stike succeeds in the end in building a new life for himself and Celine. His growth as a parental figure is underlined by his troubled relationship with his own abusive father, whom he killed as a boy to protect his younger sister. Stike takes after his father, in the sense that he is a very violent man. But he has channeled that violence into controlled military action, rather than indiscriminate abuse. And when it begins to control him, in the course of his revenge quest, he's able to reject its influence and walk away. His ability to do so is directly linked by McClellan to his parental role and the value that he places on familial relationships. So on the verge of killing Tenny, one of the men who betrayed him, Stike looks back to find Celine, his adopted daughter, watching him. Not, it has to be said, in horror, more in anticipation. But the sight makes Stike hesitate, and he spares Tenny instead of killing him, explaining to Celine afterwards that, quote, hardest thing a soldier can do is leave the killing behind him. Tenny didn't sell me out for money or power. He sold me out for a better life. Shitty thing to do, but he went somewhere he couldn't hear the hooves and the cannons and became a good husband to a fat little country girl. He did what I should have done 25 years ago. And that's from Wrath of Empire, page 182. In the middle of fighting a war, Stike's development over the course of the trilogy actually charts a course away from violence, toward peace and contentment, finding in the very experience of fighting the truth of its limitations as a way of life. So McClellan's work is inescapably military in its focus, and those who don't enjoy reading about military manoeuvres or army organisation may well find his books not to their taste. But to reduce his books to only their military themes would be to do them a disservice. As I have discussed, there are many fascinating political and social overtones to McClellan's work, as well as religious ones I've not even had time to touch on, explorations of incarnation, sacrifice, and the nature of the divine, which I leave you to explore for yourselves. I hope you've enjoyed this short introduction to the works of Brian McClellan, and thank you again for listening.